Welcome to Podland. Podland sponsored by Buzzsprout, the easiest way to host, promote and track your podcast there at buzzsprout.com. It's Thursday, May the 6th, 2021. I'm James Cridden, the editor of Pod News here in Australia. And I'm Sam Sethi, the editor of Sound Talks Technology here in the UK. And I'm Will Page, the author of Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption. And later I'll be talking about the economics of podcasting. He will. Podland's a weekly podcast where Sam and I delve deeper into the week's podcast news. And also coming up today, we have Charles Van Winkle, who is a senior software engineer for Descript. Looking forward to hearing from him. Sam, what are the big stories uh, this week? The big stories are Twitter. It's launched spaces for everyone, or at least everyone who's got more than 600 followers. So that means you and I. The company has also allowed plans for people to charge for spaces, to schedule spaces in the future, and to co-host as well. So that means you and I might even want to do a space together in the future. Yes, that might be fun. Spaces, of course, is the Clubhouse-alike thing that Twitter is uh, doing. I have to say, whenever I've had a Twitter spaces, it's always been much more friendly and much more of a feel of friends getting together rather than the equivalent from Clubhouse. But maybe that's just me. I think this is big news. Twitter has 187 million daily users. That's actually what they call monetizable daily users. I'm not quite sure what a monetizable daily user is, but that's quite a lot of users that Twitter has. And everybody will now begin to see all of these exciting blue glows at the top of their Twitter screen. So Clubhouse has also announced things, haven't they? They've announced that they are thinking about an Android app. They're thinking about you, James, specifically. Clearly, they've <laughs> finally got to pleasing you. Does that mean you, you can finally get rid of your iPod and buy something useful? Or are you going to keep that in the cupboard still? The iPod's very useful. It, it allows me to see whether Apple Podcasts is working today. Uh, well, we'll find out later, won't we? <laughs> it's a very useful thing. So Clubhouse is busy continuing to say that they're doing something with Android. Just the difference between Twitter's 187 million users um, per day and Clubhouse's 10 million users per week uh, kind of says where this is going. Really interesting to uh, see who's going to win out of this. So my question, do you think Clubhouse has got any chance at all? As I've said previously, I don't give Clubhouse very much time, to be honest, but still there we are. So is it an acquisition then? Is Clubhouse just going to be acquired? Is it going to be acquired or is it going to fade away? I suspect it'll probably be acquired. They've sent me a very exciting press release today, which I don't fully understand, but it's all about content partners. And it looks as if there's an awful lot of podcasts who they're getting into bed with in terms of something to do with Clubhouse and content which I don't fully understand because I'm, I'm not really sure how that all fits together, but I should probably read the press release properly. <laughs> There's always a first time. But I think Twitter is such a larger company with so many more users. It's just bought Scroll, which is a subscription service that is a way of you getting ad-free news websites. So they'll probably merge that with bits of review, which is the newsletter service that they've also bought and everything else. I think Twitter is almost doing a bit of a pivot to turn from being a company which is all about short form, real time text content to being all kinds of different forms of content in all kinds of different platforms. And perhaps that might be an interesting future for where Twitter's going. I think 2021 is the year of the creator. It feels like 
we're beginning as creators to be given the tools to allow us to monetize against our fan base or audience. And I think Twitter's well, clearly Jack Dorsey isn't the one running it because he's probably off at Square or in Africa somewhere still. But whoever is running Twitter these days clearly has decided that they can't make more than three. I think it's around 300 million is their user base. Yeah. And they don't seem to be going up much higher. So if the stock market wants the share price to move anywhere, then I'm sure they're under pressure from shareholders saying, do something different. And I guess this is what they're doing. I do like Scroll because I've been using Nuzzle for a while, which is their email <laughs> I'm product. glad to hear it. What's Nuzzle? <laughs> oh, I've been basically... using Nuzzle for a while. This is the sort of conversation <laughs> that you hear down the pub every day, is it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Drop that in and just leave. Nuzzle's the email that comes out of Scroll and you okay. can sign up to it. And what it does is it looks at your social graph and then it picks out the best ones and sends it to you and it just gives you your highlights mm. basically and i've just been using that because i can't sometimes be bothered to go through my feed and that's been good and then i've been reading the scroll and twitter press release i did read it and they say they're going to build nuzzle straight in so look I think it's great. If you're a creator, you've got multiple ways now to use Revu, Scroll. Hopefully Scroll, in my opinion, will get rid of the trolls. Ah, okay. And that may may well be it. Nuzzle sounds really good. So I'm busy looking at the Nuzzle website. The first thing that I learn is that Twitter is about to shut it down. Yes. So there you go. It's, it's always the way, isn't it? When you see something and you go, oh, this looks really cool. This looks really <laughs> helpful. Oh, they're just about to shut it down. Great. But... Uh, I believe it's a shutdown to to integrate rather than a shutdown to just do an acquire of developers, which is normally what you yeah, see when well, there's a shutdown. Well, I hope so. Clearly, Twitter have their eyes on a subscription model for all kinds of things, which is good. Of course, we've just heard about Apple and Spotify doing paid subscribers for podcasts as well. But there's another one, isn't there, Sam? It looks like uh, Ivox. Is that how you say it? Ivox. The Spanish yeah, podcast. Barcelona. Barcelona. Yes. No, I won't do the Manuel in person. <laughs> if, if two British people are in a room at the same time, then it very quickly goes into Faulty Towers impersonations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Badly Faulty Towers impersonations as well. So tell me more. You wrote about it. What, yeah, what I mean, they've, so they've, they have been running paid subscriptions for the last three years. Who knew? Not me. It has more than 2,000 podcast creators taking part on that, and they've given lots and lots of money to podcast creators. So it's interesting seeing that iVoox has been already part of this. And of course, there are others. There's Supporting Cast and Memberful and all kinds of other services in there as well iVooks is planning a webinar on May the 19th. My guess is that webinar will be only good to you if you speak Spanish. But nevertheless, it's always good to remind ourselves that it's not just Apple and Spotify. There are a bunch of other companies doing this as well. And in fact, Shimalaya, which is uh, the big Chinese podcast platform, but also audio platform, they are filing for an IPO in the US at the moment, and they have published their prospectus online. And that includes what Shimalaya feel is the Chinese audio market. And again, there's an awful lot of user generated content in there. There's an awful lot of podcast creators. They've got millions of podcast creators using that uh, service too. So there's a bunch of these new interesting companies which are doing interesting things outside of the US, which is um, always interesting to me. 
So I learned about the whole Shimalaya IPO thing. And in fact, I asked somebody how to pronounce it. <laughs> I learned that from JustPod, which is a newish newsletter, which is in English. There's another version for Chinese speakers as well. And I know that Chinese isn't a language. Don't at me. And that's all about the Chinese podcast industry. So if you're interested in that part of the world, it's well worth going to find it. It's called JustPod, and you'll find it in your favorite search engine. Now. You had one of your friends who's an economist also give us a little insight to what his thoughts were on all this subscription model. Because there are so many subscription services now. So I wondered what that meant for the economics of the podcast industry. And who better to ask than an economist? So I caught up with the author of a new book, which is Tarzan Economics. He's also a man who's been writing for the FT and other places. His name is Will Page. So you were the first chief economist for Spotify. You were the first chief economist of PRS for Music, which is the US Music Collection Agency. A few years ago, we got excited about hitting, I think, three quarters of a million podcasts. Now there are three million podcasts. Are there any parallels between where we're going in terms of podcasting and music? Yes, I think quite simply, when the barriers to entry fall, supply exceeds demand. That's where the rubber hits the road in terms of the economics of both music and podcasting. And I'll come back to those metrics with some from my own, which is I published a piece in the Financial Times saying that there was 55,000 songs being shipped onto streaming platforms every day. 24 hours later, Daniel Ek, my former boss and hopefully the future boss of Arsenal Football Club, announced it's 60,000. And by some rough maths of my own, as we come to the end of April, it's now up to 75,000 new songs a day. Let's just be historically clear wow. here. I think in 1984, the British music industry released 6,000 albums in one calendar year, okay? That means that streaming platforms are ingesting every day what we used to provide every year. That's been the explosion in supply that we're dealing with here. And you're seeing it happen in different ways. If I just go into the detail a little bit more, last year, major record labels released 1.2 million songs to streaming platforms. That's a lot of music. Mm -hmm. The artists using the DIY platforms, I know this is another parallel with podcasting, is just doing it yourself, empowering, using tools like Anchor, for example. Artists using DIY platforms released 9.5 million. So that's wow. a ratio of 8 to 1 of artists doing it themselves as opposed to having labels do it for them. So just to reiterate, where the rubber hits the road is when those barriers to entry fall, supply is exceeding demand, which is a positive problem to solve. And is that all a good thing? It is. I think my FT piece had ran with the title of, you know, the music industry is making more money. That's good. That's what we all wanted to happen, you know, when we're staring piracy in the face. But we have way more mouths to feed. The population of British artists and songwriters has more than doubled in the past 10 years. More than doubled. Well, find me another area of the labour market where the population has more than doubled in under a decade. And... I think the same thing is happening with podcasting. There's more money going into podcasting, but there's more mouths to feed. So you just have to do that simple division in your head to see that it's a positive problem to solve. And, you know, that's going to dominate the narrative for the next couple of years, I believe. Where do you see the podcast business at the moment? I've heard people say that Spotify has spent more than the entire industry is worth. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Spending money on assets compared to what the industry is worth in terms of revenue. So you have to differentiate between the two. But yeah, mm. they've put a lot of, if not all of their chips on red at the casino in hopes it's going to work. You've also seen huge investments from Amazon. Apple, uh, Pandora, and perhaps most interestingly, and credit to you, James, for covering this, which is our podcast, A Threat to Radio, 
Or does radio just buy up podcasting? And you're seeing the radio industry invest in podcasting as well. Which brings us back to that perennial debate, which is why on earth do we call them a podcast? You know, <laughs> an iPod can only be purchased in cash converters in Kentish Town High Street. Charity shops are the only place you can buy them. And broadcast is the exact model it's trying to disrupt. So, you know, can you imagine trying to explain to somebody in Brazil or Indonesia where podcasts are taken off, this is the origin of the word. They wouldn't even know what the iPod was there. So... Yeah, there's definitely some definition issues that we have to tackle here too. We can blame Ben Hammersley for that. He was the person that came up with that particular word, that particular portmanteau. What would you call it then? Oh, you're putting me on the spot there. I, I'm not sure I can give you a quick-fire answer to that one, but it's, it's it, the way I had approached getting to name is to think of it as a means to an end. What am I actually achieving here? Let me wheel back for a second. James has got some great ideas. I want to get them into my head. I could read a book by James Cridland. I could listen to a podcast by James Cridland. But it's a transfer of ideas in an intimate setting. Now, what makes podcasts really beautiful for me is they crack intimacy. I've always said this. The internet can scale just about everything, but it can't scale intimacy. And if podcasting as an industry plays its cards right, it might even correct for that. We could have a huge business which preserves intimacy. That's the balancing act we're dealing with. And there's some numbers out of the UK which I, I think say that 50% of radio listeners l l listen to the radio alone, whereas 92% of podcast listeners listen to a podcast alone, which is a tremendous thing, I think. I do like numbers. Uh, talking about books, <laughs> you wrote a book during the lockdown. It's called Tarzan Economics. It's available now in the UK from May the 18th in the US at bookshop.org and all good bookstores. Tell me what actually is Tarzan Economics? Has it got anything to do with monkeys? <laughs> so it's, a, it's an expression coined by a technologist called Jim Griffin, quite a famous technologist in music circles. He was responsible for the first ever digital file sold on the internet, which was Aerosmith in 1995, a long time ago. So he's been there, seen it and done it long before Napster came along. And uh, he used Tarzan economics quite a few times to explain how in life, be it ourselves as individuals, businesses, political organisations, we cling on to the old vine of doing things through inertia. It's paying the bills, it'll get us to the next quarter. We know that old vine is dying, but it holds us above the jungle floor. And what we're reluctant to do is to let go of the old vine and reach out to the new through a fear of the unknown. And if you look at the music industry, we have a 20-year head start at playing Tarzan economics. For the first 10 years, we held on to the old vine, believing people were going to go back to buying CDs and downloads. That was never going to happen. We spent millions on litigation, suing customers, websites, ISPs. We lost billions in revenue. That's a bad ratio. And then it came to the kind of the crunch point, which is we're going to have to let go. And in the second 10 years, we embraced streaming, which, by the way, is replicating what was happening in piracy. You know, I remember speaking with Daniel Eck when he had hair, that's aging my yeah. Spotify years, <laughs> which was to say that consumption of music was not the problem. Monetization was. You can bring a horse to water and expect those customers to come back to buying CDs and downloads, or you can bring water to the horse and build something that's better than stealing, more convenient than stealing, beat them on convenience. And now we've got a recovery that's the envy of every other media sector. So Tarzan Economics is to get that first to suffer, first to recover story, but transfer it to everyone else. And post-pandemic, we're all pretty much staring at our Napster moment now. And there's a ton of great uh, stories in the book. I was um, curious, if you made a podcast about your book, what would be the first episode? 
You know, in the first episode uh, is chapter two, not chapter one. So we'll, we'll lose the chronological order, which you can do with podcasting. But it's on attention. And I, I just really hammer home this point about attention economics. I call it the first fork in the road you've got to deal with before you do anything else. And I don't care what you're doing. If you're drafting local politics legislation, deal with attention. If you're drafting a new podcast, deal with attention. And it's just fascinating to start thinking about attention as binary, either you have it or you don't, or stackable, many forms of attention competing at once. And what I do in that chapter is I give a brief history of attention, which is fascinating stories of mm. Mark Twain, for example. Mark Twain invented a scrapbook, which is a modern-day newsfeed on Facebook. You know, Facebook is giving 1.6 billion newsfeeds to their customers every day, not one of them the same. Well, think about that for a minute. You know, broadcast, we all consume the same content and discuss it over the water cooler. Not anymore. We have this narrow cast model. So I, I give you the history of attention, but then I give you a framework for dealing with it. And I'll just put that framework to work really quickly for you, which is to think about where is their gin and tonic? I'm going to refer to alcohol here. That's way too early in the morning for me. Where is their gin and tonic, which is complementary forms of attention? I buy more gin, I buy more tonic, I buy more lemons and lime. And when is it monopolistic brands of attention? That is different brands of gin. Either I buy Beefeater gin or Gordon's gin, one or the other. If one gains, it's another one's pain. Now, if I look at Netflix, I'm in a weird situation just now in that Vince Gilligan loves my book. And when I was told this, I was like, first thing I said was a bit of a faux pas, who's Vince Gilligan? You have watched Breaking Bad, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't. Whoopsie. So I'm going to meet Vince Gilligan to discuss the book. And it's crazy because the reason why he loves the book is the purpose of looking at attention, how songs are getting shorter and the chorus has been moved to the front and how he wrote Breaking Bad, he put the conclusion of the first episode at the very beginning. So there's this connection here between music and film. Earlier we discussed music and podcasts. So I'm now dedicating two hours every night to getting through Breaking Bad before I meet Vince Gilligan. It would do me <laughs> proud if I actually watched this masterpiece before I meet him. So that's two hours that Netflix gets of my media time, which everyone else loses. Mm, so mm. podcasts lose, music loses, social media loses, Netflix wins, everyone else loses, which means everyone else has increasingly less time to compete for. So you have this kind of tragedy of the mm. commons playing out there. That's what I want to get across in attention is optimize for attention base one, then move to base two. And uh, it's interesting you talk about attention because that's clearly one of the things around Clubhouse and those live audio uh, services. Spotify, your uh, former employer, bought Locker Room. They announced today it's going to be called the Spotify Green Room, which is all very exciting. Our services like Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces and the Spotify Green Room, again, competition for podcasts. They clearly are in terms of attention, aren't they? Yeah, let's just step back and refer to that means to an end. You know, are podcasts in competition for books? Absolutely. Are books in competition with music? Potentially, it could be complementary. So we start to introduce this clubhouse phenomena. I call it uh, a social network for the AirPod generation. You think about AirPods as a device, possibly made clubhouse possible. So you start with a device and you build out the success story from there. Yes, because could it become passe to listen to a one-way communication? I only want to engage in podcasts when it becomes two-way. So you can see the scramble in this Wild West podcasting world happening right there, which is in six months' time, we'll be on the listening to James Cridlin's podcast thinking, do you remember the days where I used to talk to you and you couldn't talk back? That was so out of date. Now we have a two-way conversation. Very quickly on that, I think Discord is worth a mention there too, in that Discord, although I think the UX could be a lot better, 
is making it possible for everyone to become a talk show radio host. Now, I'm not saying that everybody wants to become a talk show radio host, but having the option of two-way interaction as opposed to one-way does make the podcast gamble look a little bit antiquated. How do I get feedback live on the show as opposed to how do I just talk to somebody? How do I talk to ghosts and how to become make those ghosts my friends? Think of it that way. So in the last few weeks, uh, final question, Spotify and Apple have both announced paid subscriptions for podcasts. You're The Economist. Is that going to work? Is that the new vine to grasp hold of? I think the important thing here is to look at the businesses from a couple of steps back of podcasts. So it's not to have the blinkers on and think, is this the right podcast strategy, but is this the right corporate strategy? So what is the business that Spotify is in? It's in a business of conversion. Back in 2008, when it rolled out in Sweden, Norway, and in 2009, when he launched in the UK, the idea was you had a funnel, a free funnel, which allowed frictionless engagement with this new thing called streaming and a conversion mechanism that got you to go and pay. Now, in economics, we refer to standard class and first class carriages. It's easy to travel standard class. What can I put in that first class carriage that makes you want to upgrade? And my gamble back then, and my gamble to this day is, these businesses are in conversion businesses. They want you to pay. This idea of ad-funded media is a bit of a quirk in history. If you look at Pepe's notes, paid for everything back then. Paying for stuff was the norm. Then advertising came in. I think we could be seeing a return to history of paying for stuff becoming the norm again. Yeah, I think it's going to be a a big one, but I, I would just ask your listeners to remember, what is the business you're in? And if it's the business of conversion, of making people pay, then... What we've seen in the podcast evolution today is a means to that end. So I think it's going to be the big one. But I'll reiterate the words that a great friend of mine at Spotify, Lauren Jarvis, said, which is, if you don't go somewhere, you end up getting nowhere. It's, it's not for the observer to wonder. It's for the businesses to execute. Will, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for the pod news. It's an essential fix every morning, like crack cocaine. <laughs> I will write that down somewhere. <laughs> Just for the record, I have never taken crack cocaine. I'm all for being compared to crack cocaine. I think that's a fantastic thing. <laughs> I, I actually do use the term crack cocaine marketing. Fascinating interview there with uh, Will Page. And something that if only I could put that onto the podnews.net about page, <laughs> I'd be very happy. Now, Sam, do you have any exciting showbiz neighbours I do actually strangely look I live in a very odd place where we have you may know him personally actually I've got Ricky Gervais which we'll talk about in a minute but you might know Chris Evans as well from your days at Virgin I've heard of Chris Evans I opened the door for him once I worked at Virgin in the very end of his um, second stint at Virgin when he was doing the breakfast show. And uh, I started work there about two months before he left. I never even spoke to the guy. And for the Americans listening, that's not Chris Evans, who is the actor. That's Chris Evans, who is a ginger-haired radio DJ. But he's white-haired now, really. The ginger's gone. Yes, exactly. Frankly, Uh, it had gone back then, but he was dying it. Don't say it. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) <laughs> so Ricky Gervais is your close neighbour as well? Yes, where I live in Marlow in Buckinghamshire, we've got a very eclectic mix. We've got Ricky, we've got Russell Brand, we've got Tom Kerridge and Chris Evans and many others actually. It's becoming a little bit boring now seeing them all around the town. But Ricky is a close neighbour. He lives at the bottom of my road and he's launching a new podcast called Absolutely Mental with the famous neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris, which I think will be really good. But... I will say it's on May the 10th that they're launching it and it's going to be $14.99. But here's the big question, James. Will it be on Apple or Spotify? 
and we don't know. That's the interesting thing. So the story says, listeners will be able to air them. That's, I I think, uh, deadline wordage for (laughs) play them. Air them on their podcast players which leaves it open to are they going to use something like Supporting Cast or Memberful or Supercast or any of those services, or are they going to use Apple uh, and Apple's brand new podcast subscription service, or are they going to use Spotify's, or are they going to use all of them? We don't really know, but it's quite interesting. Ricky has got previous in this. He charged for his podcast back in 2006 on a product called iTunes. Remember that? He charged $6.95 for, quote, at least four installments all the way back then. I think he released uh, a few more. And uh, he was also Guinness Book of World Records holder for the world's most downloaded podcast, which got 261,000 downloads per month. 261,000 doesn't seem like an awful lot, but he was certainly a, a winner back then in 2006. So he clearly knows what he's doing in terms of selling podcasts. The question is, how is he going? going to sell them. I guess we've not got very much longer to wait and then we'll find out. I'll just pop down and let you know. I'll give you a ring later. When you're going down for a, a mug of a mug of milk or whatever it is that you showbiz people do there. <laughs> uh, I often knock on his door and just see if I can borrow yeah, some sugar. Exactly. Why not? When he's not in LA or wherever it is that he, he presumably spends most of his time. He was trying to stay close to his roots in Slough, which is down the road, which is where the office was filmed. Ah. But clearly he's moved up market a little bit. Indeed. I knew there was a reason why you're running a radio station for that area. Um, (laughs) And now all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. I'll offer them when their careers are on the wane. Just a little job, see if they want to do something. (laughs) Now, your radio station works, which is more than we can say about quite a lot of things from Apple at the moment. Yes. Now, the new Apple podcast, iOS 14.5.1, actually dropped this week, but it's not dropped with a lot of fanfare or or favour. Kevin Finn was not too happy, for example. What have they done, James? What have they done to upset everyone now? Oh, well, it's, you know, a never-ending hamster wheel of Apple Podcasts negativity. It really is. So firstly, let's talk about Apple's Podcast Connect. That is the back end that if you're a podcast producer, you log into that and you get your analytics from it and you tell Apple when you have new shows. Now, for quite a lot of people, For quite a lot of podcast consultants, they've been waiting now two weeks for access to this thing. It won't let quite a lot of people log in. When it does let people log in, it won't give you any analytics. I had mine cut off again last week. It's now come back, but I have no analytics. I don't know whether anybody's actually using Apple Podcasts anymore. I'm presuming they are. So it's doing all of that. It's also not allowing quite a lot of people to add new shows, and it's coming back with errors about copyright or images or something when there are no actual errors there at all. So you've got that on one side. Then you've got the Apple Podcasts app, which has changed quite a lot of the way that it works. So this time last week, we were talking about the Apple Podcasts app no longer talks directly to RSS feeds and instead talks to the Apple Podcasts crawler. Now, the Apple Podcasts crawler is the thing that goes around and checks people's RSS feeds, except it does that very slowly. So this show, for example, took a day and a half 
to actually get into Apple Podcasts last week because Apple Podcasts crawler is rubbish. So you've got that as another thing. And then what they've done is they've changed the way that episode notes works. It used to be, and in fact, their specifications on their website still says that you can use proper HTML links and bolds and italics and bullet points and all that kind of stuff. Nope, you can't use any of that stuff anymore. So I wrote up a whole thing about that on Pod News a couple of days ago. So all of the stuff about episode notes. And then today in Pod News, talking about episode numbers, because you may remember a couple of years ago, Apple got very upset that people were putting episode numbers in titles. So they came up with a new tag called iTunes title, which allowed you to produce a special title for iTunes. You could then also give your episode number in a different tag. But what all of this has led to is that uh, the new Apple Podcasts app doesn't work that way. So again, There are specifications that are on the Apple Podcast website, and good podcast hosts like Captivate and Libsyn and presumably Buzzsprout are producing proper episode numbers correctly, but because the app is ignoring the title tag, then that bit's not working either. It's just a mess. (laughs) And I said this last week, I said that the podcast subscriptions have been really well thought out and a really good piece of work by the Apple team. But all of that goodwill has completely evaporated now, where we've had no working with podcast hosts on any of this new stuff, no working with the podcasters themselves, clearly launching a very buggy product where the crawler isn't crawling fast enough, that the app isn't working properly. And I get the feeling that Apple thinks that this is just a bit of fun and it's just a hobby for people to do podcasts. It's a one and a half billion dollar industry. And Apple seems to be taking us all as just idiots. And it's just incredible. And they're still saying nothing publicly. They're saying nothing about all of this. What do you think? You're a bit more of an Apple fanboy than I am. You have the Apple phones and the Apple AirPods (laughs) and the Apple whatever. Am I just being a bit harsh? No. Being an Android fanboy? No, I, I don't don't think you're being harsh. I think they've royally screwed up. Walter Isaacson in his autobiography on Steve Jobs had a brilliant chapter where Steve Jobs called the whole of the iCloud team into the foyer, uh, stood on the balcony, got the director of the iCloud and literally then said, you're the idiot who developed this and have failed and cost us the business online. If you remember the first version, I think you, everyone got an iCloud.com or iCloud.net email. He, he basically sacked him in front of the whole thing, and then he sacked every one of the developers. And then the HR people ran around very rapidly after Steve left and went, there now, you're not sacked. <laughs> he didn't uh, really mean it. <laughs> he didn't mean it. Honestly, yeah. I know he's the boss, but he didn't. But it, it, it's a brilliant chapter in the Walter Isaacson book about Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs' mentality. And I suspect, had he been alive, there would be heads rolling now at Apple for this diabolical effort. Given, I think, how much he was probably involved in the initial iPod and podcasting itself. I think in summary, I would say Apple can't do software. I think they're awful at it. I don't use any of their apps on my Mac. I just think they just all stink personally. I haven't got a good Apple piece of software, whether it's numbers or whether it's 
any of them. I, I, in fact, I can't even reel them off because I don't use them. That's the first thing I often do is just delete everything of Apple off in terms of software-wise and just reinstall mm. stuff I want to use. I, I, I don't know what they're trying to do. I reckon this is what it is. I reckon they're trying to avoid a DOJ issue. So they're making it really crap and saying, look, the competition's really out there. We're not very good. Don't go and break up the App Store. That's it. I've, I think I've finally worked it out. They're going through Congress right now, aren't they? And, and Epic and everyone else. One of our listeners, who is a big fan, is convinced that I think that this is all a deliberate ploy by Apple. And I absolutely don't think that. But also on the other side, it's interesting to hear that you do. <laughs> well, I, I've got to think of some reason why Tim Cook has gone and allowed this diabolical effort to go on. So maybe that's it. Look, yeah. mea culpa, we are so bad. We can't be competitive. Leave us alone. The frustrating thing is that Apple aren't saying any, anything about this publicly. And if Apple were to put their hands up and say, we're really working on this, guys, we've screwed up, we're really working on this, or yes, this is a bargain the way that the new episode notes are supposed to work and we'll fix that, or no, this isn't a bug, this is how we want our episode notes to look like in the new app, deal with it. Either one of those will be fine, but the fact that we don't know is just embarrassing. And to me, I'm just there thinking either Apple should take this seriously or it's just very clear that the stories that I was hearing a couple of years ago are that Apple Podcasts is the place where you go if you're not very good and you don't want your career to move forward. And I laughed oh. that off at the time because I thought that was a dreadful thing to end up saying. But now when you have a look at what Apple have foisted on us, you can see that there might be a bit of truth there. You would think that somebody actually tested this somewhere. There was a beta of it out, but it's very limited. There was a so, there was a beta, but it wasn't using half of this tech. There was a lot hmm. of server-side stuff, so you didn't see half of it. That's the problem, that quite a lot of it wasn't tested. And there was no beta of the new Podcasts Connect service at all. So nobody got the chance to give Apple any feedback on that. And that's an appalling piece of, of, of uh, software. Anyway, I, I can't work out whether I should be just annoyed and angry about it, or whether or not it's just hastening Apple's demise, and whether or not that's a good thing. I just don't know. <laughs> well, quick question that we raised a few weeks back was, is the Apple podcast index, uh, because of the change in the crawler, actually now a permanent change? Or is that a bug rather than a feature? And again, we don't know because Apple don't bother talking to us because clearly the podcast industry isn't important enough to them. I spent much of the last couple of weeks rewriting all of the podcast pages on PodNews because I can't rely on iTunes IDs anymore. And I know that a lot of other people have done that too. I know that Marco from Overcast has ended up hooking into the podcast index as have another four or five other companies because they can't rely on the Apple iTunes IDs to actually exist anymore. And that's a dreadful position for us all to be in. But the point is, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know if it's a bug or not. I used to work with a, a very blunt Yorkshireman. And, is there um, any other? There are plenty not of not, not blunt Yorkshiremen, but I used to work with a very blunt one who every so often would talk about mushroom syndrome. Oh, it's all about mushroom syndrome. This kept in the dark and fed horse manure. <laughs> and, and you're there okay. thinking, that's basically where we are. We're kept in the dark 
we're being fed nothing particularly interesting in terms of Apple's plans for where that future is. We're being taken like idiots. And there are some people who still go, oh, I'm sure it's a bug and I'm sure they'll fix it soon. I'm sure it's a bug. But, you know, at the end of the day, what do you do? Oh. Let me hold your hand and step you off that soapbox. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's a long way down. It's a long way down. Now, let's leave Apple alone and we'll see what oh, happens yes, next let's. week. I was thinking, actually, next week's headline has got to be that Zuckerberg announces some subscription service. It's got to be to, to compete with Scroll. He, he can't leave it alone for a week until he finds he's got to copy someone else. So I'm expecting that's the headline next week. Well, maybe, yes. And talking about copying somebody else or rather acquiring somebody else, I think Spotify is trying to get in on the Clubhouse action, aren't they? So Spotify recently acquired a Clubhouse-like service called Locker Room, and it's going to be called a Spotify Green Room. So I think I can see where they could use it. So if you've got Beyonce or, I don't know, Ed Sheeran in a locker room or a green room, and you as a fan could then go and participate in that, I think that would be quite exciting. I think so. I love the name, The Green Room, because that's where you go and you talk to celebrities when they're nice and relaxed. So I, I can see that that could well be what they're planning. And maybe it's a little bit mean to talk about this as being a clubhouse-like service. It is a clubhouse-like service, but it's a clubhouse-like service where only the stars get to go on the stage. So you don't mm. hear that annoying guy from LinkedIn who posts 30 motivational posts a day. And you do just hear from people like Beyonce, yes, but also Elon and Jason Calacanis and all of those types of people. But you wouldn't hear from a random SEO, inverted commas, specialist who thinks he can run a clubhouse room. Daniel Ek talks in the most recent For the Record podcast, which is a podcast that uh, Spotify makes. It's not a podcast, it's a show, because it's only available on Spotify. But he says that there's real opportunity for live audio from a consumer standpoint to allow creators to express themselves and connect with their audience. And I think yeah, there's probably something there. And that's a very focused plan. I think Twitter Spaces is open to everybody and do whatever you like with it. Spotify Green Room seems to be the same sort of thing, but be very focused in terms of what they might do. I'm quite excited by seeing what Spotify is planning for where they see audio working. It just made me wonder, would Apple buy Clubhouse? No, They're going to have to try question. and compete if they want. They had Apple One, which was basically getting a radio station to try and promote artists. They've got to get into exclusive content. They're doing that on Apple TV, and that's not been going great guns, but they're doing it, and they're spending a lot of money. If Spotify start to get stars in the green room to talk, and you get fans milling around that green room and listening to tracks, it's a very sticky way of getting people to subscribe and to play music. You can well see that. There are lots of things that I think a well-run Apple company would do, and uh, let's just wait for that to happen. But you can see that this is a subscriber's extra that in the same way that you get certain pieces of exclusive content through Apple TV Plus, you can get exclusive pieces of content, presumably if you're on Spotify, if you're a premium Spotify user, you certainly don't have to hear, hear the ads all the time. One would assume that more value ads like this would be a good plan. It also made me want to ask you the question. So 
Amazon's got Prime, right? And Amazon seems to have gone to sleep at the wheel around podcasting. They've had a little flurry and then dropped off a cliff. But will they react to any of this stuff? Will they do anything is the first question, I guess, James. And, but even if they do, they can just up the ante by just saying, oh, it's free with Prime or it's free with Prime Plus. I, I think a lot of this can be driven by the Amazon Prime, the Apple Plus subscription that they have, Google One, which is a subscription service that Google also has. I think a lot of this can be driven by that. And those services, yes, they need things for you to buy, but they also need additional unique selling propositions that you simply can't get from anywhere else. And so the difficulty that Spotify has is that they're selling stuff that everybody else has. You can get the new Elton John compilation from... Good, good to see you listening to me, new music. I was literally going to say Taylor Swift, and then I thought, no, that's a really bad example because she has <laughs> deliberately taken her music off things. But you can get the new Billie Eilish album. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Billie Eilish album from Apple Music, from YouTube Music, from Spotify. It doesn't matter. It sounds the same. It's available on all of these services, and that's fine. So it's up to all of these services to give me something extra that I can't get with anything else. And so from Spotify's point of view, it could be the Spotify Green Room, it could be their Discovery Weekly playlist, which is a great tool that they have that kind of nobody else has. For YouTube Music, it could be the fact that there's bootlegs and there's weird videos mixed up in there, or it could be the fact that they've actually got some rather better algorithms now than Spotify does in terms of algorithmic playlists. And there's a really clever one that they've got, which is the Focus playlist that they've got, which is all of your favorite music, but only the instrumentals that people have produced. That weird Indian instrumental from the Sgt. Pepper's album, for example, that would get on there, or music from Air would get on there, or That Strange, etc., etc., all all that kind of uh, stuff. So there's an awful lot of these unique things that individual services can do, and that's the thing that actually will keep people with a service or will make people jump from one commodity to another because that's all that these music services are. Spotify in the US launched their piece of hardware for the car, which was their first yeah, uh, attempt. I guess if you're in your car and you've got CarPlay, well, you haven't got CarPlay, but if you had CarPlay, you've got Android <laughs> Auto. Um, I don't, in fact. I don't even oh. have Android Auto because Toyota, for a long time, didn't believe in it. <laughs> so we weren't allowed any of that stuff. But uh, exactly, I, I think what Spotify are trying to do is that they have realised that all of the data that comes out of audio listening in cars shows that it's all radio listening still, even now. And Spotify is there going, OK, we want to be in the car Clearly, people aren't just hooking their phones up and doing all of this weird Bluetoothy nonsense. Clearly, we need something to remind them. So we're going to spend $40 on this little piece of, of electronics that can sit on the dashboard and remind you every time you get into the car that you have a Spotify account and you should be using it. And that's a very clever plan, I think. Spotify is the Play Everywhere app for me. It's the universal app you find on nearly everything. And mm. I, I know Daniel Eck has said in, in the past that was a clear strategy to be available everywhere for everyone, as opposed to Apple only on one platform or Google on another platform. So that was quite a smart thing. The, the yeah. other thing that 
Spotify, though, I wonder whether they'll do this as an open marketplace. This is one of the areas that I think Spotify could really do well in. I'm sure you've heard of things like Songkick and Bands in Town, which are like third-party apps. Again, I'm just trying to think how Scotty calls it a, a rundle, a revenue recurring bundle. And that's nice. really what's subs- <laughs> it's catchy and runs off the tongue. Uh, but that's his thing. And But I think what he's saying is if you can bundle more subscription services, one is the price elasticity of music. So let me just explain that for a second. It's $14.99 for a family account right now on Spotify. Could they go to £20? Could they go to £25? Would I still pay it? Would you still pay it? What is the breaking point of that subscription payment level? And that's a fascinating question. I understand that even the basic cheapest Spotify or YouTube or Apple Music subscription is still much more than people normally spend on music anyway. If you were to have a look at households and how much they spend on music, it's somewhere in the region of $40 a year. And once you obviously pay for uh, Spotify over a year, even just the basic model, you're looking at considerably more than that. And there's a lot of this that goes on. And it goes back to that interview with Will Page earlier, where if there's one person that understands the economics of music, it's him. And the book that he has written, Tarzan Economics, goes into a lot of the ways that music is charged and music makes money. And you can absolutely see that there's some interesting changes on the horizon, given that how much are people going to pay for music? They get podcasts included in that, right? How much are they going to pay extra for the extra podcasts, the Ricky Gervais ones that they want to have a listen to as well? And in which point does that get too expensive? If you're paying for all of these individual rundles and then you're paying for the Netflix and the Amazon Prime and the Apple TV Plus and if you're in Australia, the Stan and the Binge and all of these weird and wonderful streaming services. You know, what's the cutoff point? And uh, I find all of that fascinating. And comparing the cutoff points of these, which are 15 or $20 a month, with what you might pay for your cable connection for TV, which in the US is somewhere like $120 or more. And it's this similar here for satellite TV, $120 or more uh, per month to get all of these services. It's fascinating times, I think. I think there's a syndrome, it's called the forgotten subscription syndrome, or if there isn't, I'm making it up. But I think people, (laughs) I don't know, I'm sure there is a syndrome for, for everything. But I do know people now, and that's why people or companies prefer it, where you set it up as a subscription and then they don't have to knock on your door every month and say, please pay us. It's just recurring and happens all the time. Now, the reason I mentioned Song Kick and Bands intro, just to finish that last point, in case people yeah. are wondering why the hell I mentioned it earlier, was would Spotify start their own app store competing with Apple? Because again, it could be a music-related thing. If they've got hardware and they're beginning to produce hardware, if they opened up an API and allowed third parties to integrate with them, I think that would be an interesting competing space as well. And Spotify does have quite a good API and does integrate with quite a few things. But I think Spotify have been quite careful in how they do that. I used to have a really good 
DJ mixing app on my tablet, which was a fantastic little thing. And you could basically connect it with your Spotify account and basically mix with music from your Spotify account, including speeding songs up, slowing them down, all of that kind of beat matching, all that kind of stuff. And it was just quite fun to play with. And they had that for a good number of years. And they finally had to stop including Spotify because of some change at uh, Spotify. But I think that, again, I think a, a lot of this is the integration into other things that we use. Hence why you all of a sudden see that smart speakers, you can begin to use Apple Podcasts on Amazon Alexa smart speakers as one example, because somebody bright at Apple, there must be one or two of them still, have realized that it's a good idea for Apple Podcasts to be integrated into other platforms as well. The last part on that, which is very similar, someone in Apple must have worked it out how to stop the DOJ actually coming after them, because in 14.5.1, you can now use Spotify as your default player. Yes. So you don't have to use Apple anymore. And that's existed for a while on Android devices as well and on Google speakers. Again, it's it's Apple catching up, but great. Well done, Apple. <laughs> Excellent. I think we've done that to death now. Let's move on. Headliner, which is an app I love to use. Headliner, you wrote that they've integrated with a Megaphone by Spotify again. Oh, my gosh. We back to Spotify. So firstly, it's no longer just called Megaphone. It's called Megaphone by Spotify. That's uh, Spotify's enterprise podcast host. And Headliner, of course, is the company that does all of these fancy little shareable videos of your podcast that you can stick on all kinds of social media platforms. They've done some integration into Megaphone, which is interesting. I've not seen Headliner do very much integration into enterprise-grade stuff. And so it's um, nice to see that. Megaphone also claimed an, uh, a number of new clients who've joined them over the last um, couple of months. One of them is called Girl Boss, which apparently is very big. One of them is called Major League Baseball, which is some form of American sport. So I reported that. And then somebody else that also has Major League Baseball as a client said, oh, that's weird. They're still a client on our service as well. So I wonder whether it's just a Major League Baseball affiliate has decided that they'll use Megaphone, whereas another one is using this particular client. Who knows? But anyway, Megaphone are clearly making a little bit of exciting changes. They're rolling out some streaming ad insertion on there as well. But uh, you've got you've got a headliner about headliner for next week, haven't you? Indeed, Neil Modi, the CEO of Headliner, we're going to have him on the show next week. And he says he's got a big announcement to give us. So I'm looking forward to that. I have no idea what it is. Excellent. We'll read the press release together, James, I'm sure. Or will we? (laughs) Who knows? And it's good to see that Spotify is using the same agency for naming of their products as Facebook. Megaphone by Spotify. Instagram by Facebook. It must be a trend in Silicon Valley. (laughs) Indeed. Now, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, that's what I'm going to say. Because one of the products that has come out is called Clean Voice. Yes, Clean Voice is a new service which promises to automatically remove all of those um and er words from your recordings, which A, sounds amazing, and B, it's priced really competitively. You basically pay $3 a show, and that will essentially edit out all of those ums and ers and sort ofs and everything else, which is uh, very cool. I'm looking forward to testing it. I do have a Uh, code to allow me to test it. But the way that I'm going to test it is I'm going to interview Adrian Spatteru from the company who is running it. And I'm going to put 
our interview in a couple of weeks through Clean Voice to find out whether or not it actually does what it says it's going to do. But that's a pretty cool thing. You use Descripts, don't you, for um and uh removal? Yes, I do. And I, I've been using it for a while. And it's, it was one of those oh my God moments when I first used it. And I think podcasters should all be when they edit. I, I learned about the editing from uh, Sonal Chotsky, who's the um, Andreessen Horowitz internal editor for podcasting. And she turned me on to the whole idea of Descript, Descript being one of the Andreessen Horowitz investments. And oh my God, I was using Audacity before and suddenly I just went into Descript, clicked a button and they were all gone. And you've got to be very careful. I think I was a little heavy handed. I think people have told me in the past, like Brian Barletta, that he thought some of my editing was a little bit too harsh and he was probably right. So you have got to be careful what you do because you can remove the natural flow of a conversation if you, you over edit and maybe with clean voice they can do that. Descript have worked very hard to make that much smoother in the current versions. And actually, what was quite nice, I caught up with their senior software engineer, Charles Van Winkle, this week to talk about his role in Descript and his move from Adobe Audition over to Descript. Charles, let's start off with what are you doing at Descript? What's your role and what are you planning to do? I'm just a week into my tenure at Descript and my role is the software engineer. And so what I hope to do is fix bugs and add new functionality and keep customers happy, just like I've been doing for a number of years before, but at a different company. Okay. And what attracted you to Descript? What did you know about Descript before you joined them? I, I had a friend that works there, but also they're innovating and I'm trying not to use like corporate terminology, but executing well. So I've seen a number of things come out in Descript that I said, why aren't we doing that? Or why can't we do that? They actually have two former research interns that have been working with them one longer than the other from my previous company. So stuff that I saw in the incubation lab early on, but we could never really get that out to the customer or put it into a product at my previous company. And Descript is shipping new stuff, I think every three weeks and it's mind blowing. So also intimidating for me to try to ramp up to there. Now you, you talked about a previous company. What was that previous company? So I just hit 16 years at Adobe and all except for about two years, I worked on Adobe Audition, started as a tester and ended up being one of the co-lead engineers of the Audition team and also audio for broader part of Creative Cloud. Now that you're in Descript and you're focusing on the next generation of product, what are some of the things you might want to bring across? Well, maybe not bring across from Adobe, but what are some of the things you think you want to bring to the product? What's the focus? I was playing with, with my local build just yesterday. So one of my small achievements in the first week is, A, I can build the application. So from source code and, and run it. And so I was playing around with it. And I noticed a number of things that the basic building blocks are there. And there's some really cool marquee features, like overdub is a great selling point, And there's pretty good interchange. But there's some small finesse things in the user experience, which is not necessarily my area of expertise. I like to be in the lower level in the engine and work on really geeky stuff like file formats and metadata and routing and channelization, things like that. Something that you can point to a standard to and I say, okay, give me the standard and I will make sure it is accurate, like loudness, for example. But one of the things I learned from my teammates over the years at Adobe is to really sweat the small things. And that can simply be like the difference between click and drag a region 
versus clicking and dragging while the mouse is already moving. And it's hard to actually explain to someone until you actually show it that you need to handle those things differently. If someone is quickly editing on the fly, you probably imagine a number of radio broadcasters in the UK live and die by the mouse and keyboard in Cool Edit or Audition. There's some small things there that you can do that make that experience better. So I'm keeping notes of the things that I find, and maybe they'll be prioritized and maybe not, but small things to just make the experience a little bit more smooth where you don't even notice it's an ergonomic function. I've been using Descript for nearly two years now, and our mutual friend is Jay LaBeouf, who's there, and he knows very well, and most people who know me know very well that I love Descript as a product, but it does have those minor nuances, those minor why are they doing that moment? Or why doesn't that work like this? Because it doesn't make sense. Um, and one of those, I'll say it because then I'm sure I've put it up onto uh, many notice boards in Descript, is a mixing audio music with the vocal track. Just that way that it works, it just doesn't feel quite natural. And so sometimes I have to jump back into Audacity just to do that because it just is simpler and quicker and easier. And look, I'm not picking apart Descript because it's a great product. The composition view, I felt that too. You have your speech track on the bottom and I'm, I'm not up on all the correct terminology. And then you can have various clips or regions above <laughs> it. And I've been playing around and dragging, put in an image, put in a video, put in audio. And I think there's some design revisions that could be done there that could help onboard new customers. But the things that I will probably personally start working on are the pure audio stuff. I tried to make a statement when I joined the company, say, I want to focus on audio and you know really own that part of it. So I noticed that while you're playing audio, you could go up and start you know twiddling the volume knob really fast and you hear some cracks and pops and chunks and stuff. It should be smooth as if you were moving an actual physical potentiometer on an analog board or on your stereo. And so it's some of those audio specialist things that I will probably end up working on. But like yourself and other users, I'll give a bunch of feedback on the interface. But they're doing a lot of stuff. It's quite staggering what they've been able to accomplish. Look, I run a radio station. I've got 35 presenters using Descript. And and we couldn't live without Descript now. Just the removal of ums and ers with one click, just the ability to close down audio gaps and remove certain paragraphs or key sentences or words, like a visual word document. You just can't do that. Before in Audacity, it was like, oh, somewhere in here, there's going to be a word. Let me see if I can find it. Eeny, meeny, miny. I've got it. Oh, that's a bit of luck. And so it was a total transformation in terms of podcast audio editing. Given your background, you've got two degrees in audio engineering, I think. So I have two miscellaneous associate degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Audio Recording from Indiana University School of Music, and then a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of Washington. And my focus in electrical engineering, people think, it, oh, you're working on circuits, but it's actually the domain of digital signal processing is often within double uh, E, as they call it. So I try to focus on digital signal processing to do the actual math to create a reverb or take away noise or something like that. That was the goal, at least. I didn't actually end up doing a lot of that in my career, but it helped shore up my background as I switched from a role of a tester to a programmer. Also studied a number of other sort of current topics, you know, machine learning and codecs and networking and things like that. I tried to angle everything. Any of my class projects would have been something related to audio. So looking to the future now, what can users or people 
do to get involved with Descript? How can we best feed back in? As I said, I've got some things I want to feed back into. What's the best way that people can do that? There's a public feedback page. Let me find the URL. I think it's just feedback.descript.com. And what I notice is that whenever someone votes on something or enters a new feature request or adds feedback there, that's immediately public as like a push notification to the company. And so there's a Slack channel that aggregates it, or I can go there. Actually, when I was interviewing, I was going there to to decide, is this something I want to work on? And I looked at all the feature requests that people had. And the nice thing is from coming within the same product domain as going from a competitor to another competitor, a lot of the feature requests made sense. And I already have opinions on, oh, it could be done this way. I'm still learning the code base, the new code base, but it all it felt very comfortable for me. And so that's probably the best way. It has a under review section, a plan section, an in progress section. So Descript tries to be fairly transparent on some of these things. Typically, there's a three-week cadence. And I think the best way to do to influence or to advocate for something is just to go there and, and vote things up. Okay. Last few questions. Given your background and audio, where can podcasters see eventually computers and software like Descript helping us with podcasting? Is there things in your mind that this is where the next generation of this will go? I think the real benefit to podcasters is to identify the things that cost you a lot of time. So some podcasters are running it as a business and they're making money. A lot of podcasters are doing it just because they have a passion for a topic, sometimes a really niche topic, but they're, they're passionate for it. And not every podcaster is doing their own editing. And if they are doing their own editing, not every podcaster is comfortable with audio workstation terminology. So the things that cost you a lot of time, like you're editing out every single breath, like you're perseverating around trying to find the right EQ for someone and you're not really sure what to do. You read, oh, boost this frequency up somewhere on a forum. I would imagine a lot of those things will become more and more automatic. Trying to remove background noise, those things will just become more and more automatic if it's costing you time and money. Because that's where you see value in a product where you can justify going from a free product like Audacity to a paid subscription like Descript is that you can prove to yourself, this is going to save me time and that's worth something. It will also be balanced with the business needs of enterprise customers will have these weird requests of, okay, we need it to work with our media asset management system or this sort of you know billing system. And there'll be those sort of features that happen too that will have to be balanced with the needs of podcasters. But I'd say you know, the wow features, the real wins for those where you'd say, you look at it and immediately say, holy smokes, that's going to save me three hours every single day. And it's three hours I could be sipping coffee or playing with my kids or riding a bike or whatever. Cool. Charles Van Winkle, congratulations. Welcome on board to Descript. I look forward to your light touch hands making the product even better. And where can people, if they want to find out more about Descript, go? Where can they go? Descript.com. Nice and simple. Charles, thanks so much. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Charles Van Winkle from Descript. I was going to say you're listening to Podland. It's uh, quarter past six, but I decided to, <laughs> I decided that I better not because this isn't the radio and you don't need to do that. One last story. Sam, 
We were just talking about Audacity and Audacity being a free product for editing. And yeah. most people start off with using that when they podcast. They go, how do I edit my podcast and clip it out and add some music and do various things? And that's what I did. I started learning Audacity, which is great and long may it rain. But it's been bought or it says not bought. It says acquired by a new company called Muse Group. Now, who are Muse Group, James? And, and why would they buy a free open source platform? Or indeed, have they bought a free open source platform? That's the weird thing. So they announced it in a video from a chap called Martin Keary. Now, Martin is actually a very well-known and uh, well-regarded person who has worked on UX research and design. He used to work at Microsoft. He's done a bunch of that kind of stuff. He announced that he has been asked to step up and manage Audacity in partnership with its open source community, whatever that's supposed to mean. And if you go to a website from a company called Muse Group, then you'll discover that Audacity appears on their website as one of their products. Now, Muse Group produces a couple of other products. One of them is called, I think it's called Muse Core, which is uh, another piece of music software and, uh, and all of that. So I, I was curious because partially for two reasons. Firstly, Audacity's website doesn't mention anything about this. Uh, it's not mentioned in the development mailing list for Audacity. It's not mentioned on the Audacity forum. So I don't really understand quite what's going on here. Secondly, Audacity is a free piece of software anyway. So you can download the code that makes Audacity. More than 100 people work on it. Anyone can download it. So I was there thinking, I don't really understand how Muse can buy something which is open source software, and I'm not quite sure how they can end up saying that. But I think having looked a little bit more into it, there is a trademark for Audacity, and that trademark is was originally registered by the original developer Dominic Mazzoni, who is a Google software engineer these days. Now, that trademark now appears to be owned by Muse Group. And Muse Group, they're based in uh, Cyprus. And, uh, and so that trademark is now owned by them. So that's interesting. So what I think is going on here is that Audacity, as the registered trademark, is now being looked after by this company called Muse Group. They will probably fork a, a version of Audacity which does additional things, which you can do, and that's fine, and keep it under the Audacity name, and almost definitely revamp the user experience. It's a really ugly piece of software. And in fact, the, the way that Martin Keary first announces it is he says, Audacity, everybody knows Audacity. It's the music editor with six magnifying glasses in its interface and it does when you have a look at it it's got these weird six magnifying glasses you've no idea what any of them do so i think that he's my hope is that uh, he makes audacity a much better editor and 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 actually puts a little bit of money into it in terms of improving the look and feel of how the thing works. And maybe that's the plan for where Audacity is going. And hopefully Martin can do it in such a way that he doesn't really annoy all of the developers who have been working on it for, for the last 10 years or so. It is a great tool. And it's the one that a lot of radio stations use as their starting point for when you want to edit stuff. So long may it rain. Uh, Indeed. Let's see what happens. Now, James, what's happening for you in Podland this week? 
I have been putting some of the finishing touches or some of the mid touches to the Australian part of Podcast Day 24, which it turns out I'm organizing the program for. And the exciting thing that we just announced today is that it's going to be an in-person event in Sydney. It's actually going to be a conference that people can go to, which is going to be cool and very exciting. It's on June the 7th. I've spent most of the day emailing people who I want to appear as well as emailing those people who we've already announced who are appearing, just to double-check that they are doing what I think they're doing. So all of that is really cool. Really looking forward to having a podcast conference in a venue in Sydney, um, a hop, skip and a jump away from the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's going to be a wonderful thing. You can find out more at podcastday24.com slash Australia if you're wanting to come to the Australian thing or if you want to be part of the whole day, which is also happening in London and in North America, then it's just podcastday24.com. What mm. have you been doing? Today, later on, I will be hosting an event called the Cookie Apocalypse. Let me try and even say it today. The Cookie Apocalypse. I'm not going to do very well, am I, this afternoon? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm hosting apocalypse. it. The Apocalypse, that... I can't even say it. <laughs> wow, know, good all... luck. <laughs> yes, the cookie thing that's dying. I'm hosting it for Sweaty Betty, Boohoo, and several other fashion houses. So yes, that'll be an interesting afternoon for me. And I'm also doing a live in-person event, or I've announced a live in-person event called Old Bangers and Mashup. I'm doing it with two friends who we've done an event called Mashup for many years. And we just decided that actually it'd be nice in September to get everyone together. No, no speakers. Just a chance to meet up, so it's called Old Bangers and Mashup. Well, that sounds like a lovely thing. I'm also actually working for a large company that I can't mention, but one of the things as that usual, I'm, uh, as usual, but one of the things that I'm doing for them is um, sitting them down in a room and explaining how podcasting works. And I'm Excellent. really looking forward to doing that. Actually, and there's a lot of people who are trying to enter the podcasting space at the moment, and they enter the podcasting space without really understanding the history of podcasting. And it's something that I do think is useful to know and to understand, even if you then make the choice that you're going to ignore all of that. I think it's very important to at least understand how podcasting currently works, how people earn money from it. And I think were you to look at Luminary and Luminary's launch, that was a clear example of a company that didn't understand the space that it was getting into and I think they've they've now understood that but I'm very much lo looking forward to doing that so that'll be in the middle of the night for me but I don't care it's fun so I'd like to do a little bit more of that in the future I think indeed that's it for this week James should we wrap it up there go on then go on then <laughs> I thought you were going to do my ending script there Sam no I think I'll leave that to you you go for it <laughs> okay and that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed your trip to Podland, come back again next time. You can follow this podcast in your app or visit the website at podland.news. And thank you for listening. If you've any comments about anything on the show today, send a voice comment to questions at podland.news or just tweet us at podlandnews. If you want daily news, you should get the daily Pod News newsletter. It's free at podnews.net. That's where you'll find all of the links for all of the stories we've mentioned this week. The music is from Ignite Jingles this week. Yes, we've got music back again this week, so that's good. We recorded with Clean Feed this week. We edited with something or other. Oh, Descript, yes. And yes. we're hosted and sponsored by Buzzsprout. 
We'll see you in Podland next week. Please tell your friends about us. And in the words of Apple, if it ever works, please keep following. <laughs>